Welcome to Meanwhile. I'm Michael Melcher. I'm an executive coach who lives in New York City and Western Massachusetts, travels hither and yon. What do I do? Coaching is a method to help people think more broadly and deeply, and therefore get more of what they want in life and grow in the way they want to. Coaching overlaps with lots of ideas in leadership, career development, self-help, and so on. This podcast is about ways to improve your life and work, partly but not totally drawn from my coaching work. It's called Meanwhile, because it's about how to make changes while you're doing everything else. This week, we have a super exciting episode because I have an extra special guest, my old, old, and good, good, yet extremely young-looking friend, Faith Ediele, who I first met more than 30 years ago. Together, we are going to explore the creative life All the more exciting because I thought I'd messed up this recording months ago and lost it, but it has magically been found and spliced together and made perfect by my engineer, Darlene. So let's get started. Welcome to Meanwhile. This is Michael Melcher, and I'm in gorgeous, sunny, extremely spring-like San Francisco. And today, we have a very special episode because I have a special guest sitting right beside me, my dear, dear, bestest friend, Faith Adiele, who I met um, many years ago when I was a sophomore in college, and she was a fresh man. We met on the day that Brezhnev died, and the Boston Herald's headline was, Reds Brez Dead. Or Red's Prez dead. There's some controversy there. You know, like all great controversies, it lasts over the decades. But today we're going to talk about creativity. And who better than to talk about this than one of the most creative people I know, Faith Ediele, who is a writer with several published works. She travels around the world to writers' colonies and various types of gigs and occasional boondoggles. <laughs> And she's also a teacher. She's a beloved instructor. And she's currently teaching, I believe, both graduate and undergraduate at California College of the Arts here in San Francisco. When she was in college, in a real episode of Turning Lemons to Lemonade, she took a year off, went to Thailand, hung out, studied, and then shaved her head and became a Buddhist nun and entered a convent in the hills. Oh my gosh, not only was I the original Obama, but now you're saying I'm the original Beyonce because I made lemonade first. Millennials, we were all there first. Everything has been done before and it was probably done by us. And my only question is, where's my goddamn talk show and how come we're not really rich? But we'll get into that. Faith Adiele, you have worked in and around creativity for many years. And I I have a series of questions here that I haven't even told you about. So I'm going to totally put you on the spot. Um, The first thing is that You've now been teaching for many years, as well as being a writer. And I'm curious, what has teaching students about writing and creativity taught you about creativity? Particularly being at at an art school, is that I'm always learning something new for my students. I mean, one, they know the new technologies, but now I'm teaching art students. So they're approaching some of the things I'm talking about through completely different ways. They're kind of afraid of words, actually, but we're kind of interested in a lot of the same topics. And so You know, they teach me how to read graphic novels. They come with like these ideas that come out of design. And, and I mean, 
things that I didn't even realize were majors, like bicycle engineering. And it was like all this kind of crazy stuff. And they're like, well, I'm really interested in kind of what you're talking about with regard to international literature, but can I build a giant 4D brain to talk about it? Or can I do it in this way or that? So it's always giving me new ways to think about narrative, you know, having your voice out there in the world, looking at, um, you know, kind of diversity and all of the things that I'm interested in, I'm like learning new ways of approaching it, not just through words, which I think makes my writing, it challenges my writing. I'm also curious, as you look at all these fresh, unlined faces, so eager (laughs) and and filled with whatever unprocessed issues they have, what kind of insight does that give you into your own past as you sort of look at yourself when you were a young writer? And like, what have you learned from that? And, And if you could revisit (laughs) <laughs> yourself 30 or so years in the past, what might you tell yourself? That's a great question because I always start my classes out by telling them that I flunked out of college and went to Thailand, shaved my head and became a Buddhist nun. Uh, because I think it's really important for them to know, like, how did, how did somebody who's at the front of the, t- at the front of the room get to be there? And particularly in art, so much of success is supposedly failure, experimentation, crashing and burning. What do you do with that? So I open that conversation up really early. And then some of the things they're struggling with, you know, I wish I could go back and be a little more gentle with myself, but I'm able to tell them, I'm like, you know, I flunked out so you don't have to, you know, and I, you know, I, I help them take care of themselves and kind of think about you don't have to be perfect. And this is all part of the learning process. And the real learning comes from when you're up against the wall and something's really hard and you don't think you're going to be able to do it. And there's a lot of experimentation. And so in making myself a more responsive and gentle teacher, I'm able to kind of maybe forgive myself for things that I read of nar- as narratives of failure that, you know, to be gentle with that, with that younger me who expected so much and like didn't know how to handle it if she wasn't the smartest person in the room and had to run away out of kind of shame at having, having let people down. So one thing, Faith, that I've known about you ever since we met is you have a wonderful sense of humor. We've always shared a real gay repartee, a Waldian <laughs> sense of rapier wit, if you will. Um, lots of storytelling. And at the same time, I know that uh, many of the themes you've written on over the years, uh, some have been quite serious, some some less so. And, you know, I have my own opinion, having viewed you all these years of, of watching you kind of go in and out of that. I'm kind of curious what you would say about how humor fits in to how you approach writing and um, the top, both the topics that you're looking at and, and also the, the process of, of writing. I was just having this conversation with my, fi- with my friend uh, Zahir Johamed, who runs the Racist Sandwich podcast. And he's, you know, he's like an investigative journalist who focuses on uh, corruption in India and all the sorts of things. And he said his mom was saying like, Zahir, you're so fun at the dinner table, but like all of your writing is so like sad and serious, but you're so fun at the dinner table. And I was like, I kind of remembered that too, that people would say that my emails from when I traveled were like hilarious. But when I started to write, it was all like, and then the genocide and like the racism and the nostalgia. And I have all these really big, important topics that kind of grew out of my training as an activist and, and as a civil rights baby that I want to write about. But my natural demeanor, which I think is like 100% when I'm with you, is like really humorous. So I had to kind of try to figure out how to work that into my writing um, because I am really interested in things that are tragic comic. And I feel that that's really the most seductive way to get, to get people invested. If you're just 
Debbie Downer all the time. People are like, it's like PBS, like, oh, I'm glad it's there, but I don't want to be watching it. Whereas if you're like making someone like laugh hysterically and then you, and then you, you know, sucker punch them with like genocide, <laughs> they're like open, they're ready for it. And you can have like more of a conversation. Um, and that's more in keeping with how I see things too. I'm not like walking around sad all the time. Um, I'm seeing like, you know, what's kind of wacky in those situations. And so I, I, I think of it as kind of a superpower to see the humor in the serious topics that I'm interested in. Oh my God. I was just cracking up so much. And you just hit me with that genocide. You get it every time. <laughs> Listeners, we are actually two of the four co-authors of a fabulous novel that was published approximately 20 years ago called The Student Body. It's about a prostitution ring at Harvard College. Get it? Yeah, yeah. And our pseudonym was Jane Harvard. Get it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... This was a portrayal of our college years, basically, with the theme of a student prostitution ring, because we needed, you know, a little kicker. And it was amazing. I have to say that um, so many reviewers, whether good or bad, would say, like, this has movie written all over it. And we are still waiting for our residuals checks on those, I can tell you. However, um, one thing I recall is that we would just, like, crack up constantly as we were writing this along with our colleagues Julia Sullivan and Bennett Singer you know because you just mess around a lot in coming up with the type of purple prose that we we wanted and at the time my perception faith was that the types of writing things you were involved in were much more serious much more um highbrow I guess and we positioned this as a very medium to lowbrow at best offering <laughs> And yet we wrote a whole friggin' novel and, it, you know, we got good coverage, um, uh, usually pretty good reviews, although the Calgary, I will never forget the Calgary Herald, which described us as trash with attitude and compared us unfavorably to masters like Judith Krantz. But I'm just kind of curious, like, what that experience of getting kind of swept along this very commercial, almost trashy, lowbrow thing did as far as, like, opening up your, your creativity. It definitely did open up my creativity. I mean, it's great to have something that's kind of low stakes and playful. And that's what I try to do with my students too, to like, you know, not think that everything is, because you can get really blocked if you think it's got to be significant, it's got to be highbrow. And I also feel that different audiences and different stories require different approaches. And so we were still dealing with a lot of the topics I'm interested in, which was like reflecting our multicultural world, which a lot of reviewers thought we had made up, but it was actually the reality of our lives. <laughs> you know, I mean, a couple of us were like, you know, almost first generation college, certainly first generation Ivy League. And we surrounded ourselves with like the children of immigrants and the single mothers club, you know, and so it was, it was our reality. So on some level, um, and, and I think we're seeing that nowadays with like this whole kind of Afro surrealism stuff that's happening is and YA people are taking genre stuff that was considered lowbrow and doing really interesting things with it that are actually kind of politically and socially advanced. And so it did teach me an appreciation for that, that there is a space for all these kinds of stories. Plus I learned, you know, kind of how to work the publishing world in something that I wasn't as invested in. So when it came for me to do my memoir, I kind of knew the game and that I knew that it was a game that's separate from the creation of your literary art and your identity. So Faith's um, memoir was called Meeting Faith, colon something. I think it changed from the hardcover to soft color. You can explain in a second. But I, I watched this, uh, you know, it's, it's long pregnancy and birth. And Faith, you wrote the most kick-ass, killer, well-formatted um, 
pitch letter <laughs> to to publishers, it was almost like you wrote it in a fugue state or something. It was just so jazzy and and commercial. And like I totally saw that coming out of this whole process. All right. Creativity. Perspiration versus inspiration. Your views, please. So yeah, I mean when you're starting out, <laughs> of course you believe like, you know, in inspiration and the muse and you know, God comes down and anoints you with your like brilliant story and you just sit there. And then of course as soon as you're well, as soon as you're in school and you have to like produce inspired work on time, you realize that like 90% of it is just insert butt in chair and pen in hand and that you just have to be able to kind of tap into those things. There are definitely things that I can do. <clears throat> like I'm a very sensory based uh, writer. So one of the things I do is like collect sensory souvenirs or kind of muscle memory prompts. So I'll collect like ugh, things that have smells and tastes and sounds to them, um, you know, like a little tin of bag bomb or dippity doo, which is what my grandmother used to put in her hair. I put bag bomb. Yes. That's for like udders. Yeah. It's for udders. Yeah. But any farm girl will tell you that it has myriad uses. So if I'm going to write about my grandfather, I'll have like some bag bomb and maybe some old spice. And then I'll like immediately almost kind of go into a trance where I'll remember him and I'll write almost as in a fugue state. And so I can, I can jumpstart the inspiration. You find, as a professional, you find ways to make the inspiration strike. And then you can go in with the perspiration and, you know, all the revisions, all of that. I mean, once you get kind of, you know, I just write, I go into a trance and I like write all this stuff. And half the time I didn't realize what I even thought about something. I thought I was going to start with something and then I get all this detail and then I try to mine the detail to figure out what is the story really about? And then the fun part comes where you're shaping it, revising it, creating the metaphor, adding all this other stuff to it. So they go hand in hand. But once you've started on a project, then you can enter back in anytime. You don't have to be waiting for you know the, the muse to come and anoint you. So even though our brilliant book, The Student Body, did not make us rich or as globally famous as we certainly merited... <laughs> We did have a fantastic editor. Like, weirdly, we got one of the best editors in the business. Even then, he was well-known, Jonathan Karp, and now he's, like, ultra-super famous in the editorial world and has, like, his own imprint or publishing house or some giant position somewhere. We'll have to Google him later. <laughs> drop, him, drop him a quality card. I once asked him to describe the writers he worked with. He said, they're just professional people. They just work hard and do good work. Like, it was no more dramatic than that. It's like the same as if in any other profession, you just show up and you do it and you produce good work product and whatever crap you're dealing with, you figure out a way to manage it on the sideline to let yourself get in there. And I do think that one of the both attractions but problems that the creative life has is that there is this mystique that seems to perpetuate itself generation after generation where people kind of associate their personal pain or suffering with the creative process itself and that they become more focused on becoming this kind of creative character as opposed to actually doing the creative work. Or to put it another way, they get really into their own ego. And my experience has certainly been that while my ego can you know, drive me and make me want to succeed, when you're actually doing something creative, it's what just kills everything. Because whenever you're writing something, the first one to you know, 20 drafts are not only going to be bad, but they will make you question your very existence as a writer, a creative person. And like, who would ever want to read these stupid, narcissistic, tiresome meanderings <laughs> of the most like platitudinous prose possible. <laughs> and you just have to like get get beyond that to kind of get anywhere. I remember one of your like many skills <laughs> before 
being a life coach was like actually a thing is that you could sense like 5,000 miles away <laughs> if I was lying on my sofa, like gnawing on a log of chocolate chip cookie dough and whining about how hard it was to be a writer and the phone would ring and you'd say, you know, Faith, lying on your sofa, gnawing on a log of chocolate chip cookie dough and whining about how hard it is to be a writer does not make you a writer, is not writing. <laughs> so that was a very, that was a great wake up call for me. Uh, is that you understood how I operated and you were very clear on calling me on that sort of thing. And God knows it's much more fun to play at being a, a writer. Um, I get very distracted. Nowadays, it's not by chocolate chip cookie dough so much as it is going to do speaking gigs and being taken out for drinks afterwards and like reaping all the rewards because being a writer is so solitary and it's so fraught with, you know, self loathing and questions and that sort of thing. So then when people are lining up saying, oh, you know, your work meant everything I, to me. I don't loathe you. <laughs> I don't loathe you. And here's some bourbon. Then you're like, oh my God, this is so much better and so much easier than writing. But of course, it's also destabilizing. If you're not actually involved in the creative process, you start to feel like a fraud. You start to feel disoriented uh, and you're not really doing the thing that you've arranged your life to do. Right. So there's a kind of turning outward and also turning inward. And we, I think we can exaggerate sometimes the turning inward because you can't live just as a hermit alone and be connected because if you're expressing something to the rest of the world, you have to be part of that world. And frankly, you earn, you, you earn those free drinks, Faith. <laughs> You've worked at a somewhat low-income job <laughs> for decades now um, in service of this greater interest or you know just what you really wanted to do. And why not? Why not enjoy it and be on the panel and, and go to the parties and do all that? But you're also right that while that satisfies certain parts of your spirit, if you don't give attention to the other parts, it really does start um, wilting away. Now, the other thing that I know about you is that you have always had a very strong political consciousness, and I would say a, a global one, in the sense that both of us had been in developing countries when we were young, and we were very connected to that, and we see people in poor countries as real people, which a lot of people don't really see here, including people who consider themselves very progressive. It's like, that's just like this other that doesn't really count as much as people here. And yet at the same time, you are not one to frown on, let's say, a day at the Four Seasons Spa. <laughs> You know, you know, you like beauty and luxury and whimsy. And I think now you fully embrace both of those. But I'm curious whether previously you were wondering if they were like in conflict with one another. I mean, I think when you're young and angry and things very black and white <laughs> and you're kind of outraged. And I've been raised to be outraged from a very, very young age <laughs> at, um, you know, inequities in the world of which there are so many. And if you're not actively working against them, then you are benefiting from the system. So let's not, you know, pretend <laughs> that, um, you know, clicking on something on Facebook and feeling sad absolves you from, <laughs> you know, <laughs> living in the global North and enjoying the fruits of that. So, <laughs> but <laughs> I also then think about uh, the history of my family and the fact that, you know, my father comes from a country that was colonized and he grew up under, you know, colonization. And my mother came from, you know, landless serfs, you know, in, uh, in the Nordic countries. And, you know, and then she was first generation 
college and had to raise a child alone and stuff like that. So we haven't had a lot of luxury either. So I feel like there's actually, it's not odd that I would want to enjoy some of the American dream, other things that other people who have a, you know, similar levels of education just take for granted. So I think maybe that's one of the ways I assuage my guilt. But I also have two, there were kind of two moments that were really uh, instructive for me. Um, and the first one was when I got into graduate school in writing and I had been running a nonprofit in Boston and trying to write on the side. And I felt a lot of guilt about, um, going to graduate school in something as frivolous as writing, you know, because I think any kind of immigrant kid can, you know, relate to that. Like we came all the way from, you know, this country so you could study art. You know, nobody, <laughs> nobody wants to hear that. And I was trying to decide whether or not I should go to Iowa, which is a, you know, a very kind of posh writing program. And you sent me a ticket to go to Iowa and walk around. And you said, walk around, see if you can imagine yourself here, and then just consider the question that maybe your gift to the world is through being a writer and not through running a nonprofit and being like exhausted all the time and having bad health care. And that was incredible. That was so freeing that somebody who was like, who had also kind of made this leap, you know, from having a single mom and, you know, was a scholarship kid, could like see me and, and possibly think that I would still be giving to the world just through something I loved. And it wasn't in, it's been the case. Like I'm dealing with all the same issues I was dealing with before. I'm just wearing a writer's hat. So that was incredibly instructive. And then the next, the next moment was after I finally met my father, we didn't really get along that well, but I did kind of admire his role in kind of Nigerian independence. And we were, we were talking about something and I was talking about all the things I had to do. And he just said, and he said, just remember, you can't help anyone if you're dead. So you have to do some self-care which, you know, people talk about now radical self-care. This is like back in the day, you know, a little old Nigerian man saying, like, you can only help people if you actually live a life that is sustainable and joyful for yourself. So you have to do those things in order to then, you know, stay in the, stay in the game long enough. Let me ask you another question that, that relates to that. So we're currently in fabulous San Francisco, where everyone wants to live, supposedly. And I live in fabulous New York. I have to tell you that for some reason, I got it into my head Friday night that I should go to Macy's on 34th Street at like 8 p.m. when I was like super exhausted um, and may have had an ambient hangover from the night before and decide I needed to get like new jeans for a big meeting we're having at a tech company on Monday. I don't know, I don't know what I was thinking. You don't want to go to main flagship Macy's when they've had like three hours of not really resorting all the clothes that people have tried on. <laughs> it was like Mad Max Macy's, but I digress. Normally New York's amazing. So we, and we didn't come from these places. You came from Southeast Washington state, little tiny town called Sunnyside where I've been. Um, I came from the part of Orange County, California that is not on television plus other various places. And then we kind of migrated as many people do to these interesting coastal cities and have also lived overseas. However, you've also lived in Pittsburgh for a number of years and you live in Iowa for a number of years. And I'm curious what those experiences taught you about where you thought you needed to be living in order to like express your full selfhood. So yeah, I had spent so much time. I mean, my whole identity growing up was someone who was like not a small town girl. So it was just like, please let me get to a city. So I was like terrified to leave Boston, even though I hated it. Oh my God, I hated that place. But I'd worked so hard to get my little foothold there. Yeah. So I thought, you know, I was scared to go to Iowa, you know, so 
you know, once you made that suggestion, I went there and I saw that there were, you know, really smart people. And, and then I had such an amazing time there. And one of the things that I really liked is that like everybody who was interesting kind of came together. And so there weren't those divisions you see. I mean, anyone who looked interesting or was halfway progressive, it didn't matter like what field you were in. It didn't matter. Like, Get over here and come to my goddamn birthday party. <laughs> Exactly. Didn't you know? I mean, there was none none of these divisions that you have, and so it ended up being really charming. Um, and I had a really kind of wonderful life there. Uh, and so then that really opened my mind to the possibilities. And I don't think I would have accepted the job in Pittsburgh had I not had that experience in Iowa. I knew nothing about Pittsburgh. Uh, and then people were just saying, like, you know, it's you know, it's a you know all these artists, all this money for art because of foundations. And again, it was a, a small community. It was a fluid community. If you found out about something that was happening, you could just go. You could just go to a house party because somebody sounded interesting, um, and it was yeah, it was very very instructive. That you know you don't just have to like fight for your toehold in you know these coastal cities. That there's really interesting stuff that's happening, and people who are generous about it, and that it's not necessarily about climbing the ladder in your respective field, but it's about where are you most challenged and supported. And so that was, yeah, very instructive. I will also add a fact that many of you creative types will be interested in hearing is that, Faith, you actually bought a home when you were in Pittsburgh. You bought like your very own house, and it's a gorgeous house. Um, it was owned by a contractor who kind of printed it all up before you moved in. Yeah, it was like I never in my wildest dreams thought I would be able to own a house. And it was like so stunning and beautiful. And that helped me just, I kind of really settle and figure out like how I wanted to be as a grown up and what I could do. Um, and, you know, we ended up having a lot of kind of, it was kind of the center of, of, you know, social, you know, kind of artistic social life in that neighborhood, um, which I do miss here. I mean, it's interesting. Everybody wants to be out here. And to a certain extent, everybody's like me. I go to a party and everybody's like a biracial Buddhist writer slash activist. We're all over the place. And yet I don't have that super tight community that I had in Iowa and in Pittsburgh. I think the other thing that shows up in those two examples is that, um, the pace of life really is just different once you get out of the coastal cities. So if you're in one of these metropoli, metropolises, <laughs> metropol, anyway, if you're one of these places, you do spend a lot of time just like dealing and coping and handling the kind of transportation and financial demands of surviving. It, it can be worth it. You may have other opportunities, but there are places in the country, in the world, where you actually don't have to spend that much of your life energy just dealing. And that that allows you to to have more of yourself for whatever you want to do. It could be creative things. It could be your family. It could be you know, religion or your Pilates life or, or whatever. Um, there are a lot of other options besides the the places we happen to live in. And and I, I do think that for me, like an interesting realization is that I'll often believe that my identity is tied to a particular place or even a particular job. Um, but then once I manage to leave those things, it turns out, oh, I'm I'm still me. So my very first real job was as a foreign service officer. I was in the State Department when I was like 23. And then I quit, partly for career reasons, partly because it was like this terrible, homophobic, mean place pre-liberation. And one thought that I had in my head when I was in Taiwan questioning whether I should just actually leave and go to grad school was, well, who am I going to be? I mean, I live overseas. That's what's interesting. I can't just go back to boring old America and all my friends will be like very disappointed that I'm not this glamorous young diplomat person. And then when I got back, they're like, oh, hey. <laughs> and I was like, 
I'm like, well, don't you, aren't you disappointed in me? They're like, no, why? You're still Mike, Mike, as my old friends call me. Like, yeah, that was kind of cool for a while, but whatever, here you are. Faith, one thing we always do on this podcast is we try to give people a specific exercise that they can try out on their own uh, to work with some of the ideas. So, what do you have for our, our millions of listeners around the globe today? Well, one of my favorite ones that I use both for writing memoir, travel writing, and also as an icebreaker for people just getting to know each other in any kind of group, or maybe if you're just like missing someone in your family, is this thing that I referred to earlier, the muscle memory exercises, or you can also call it sensory souvenirs. So what you do is just like collect something that activates one of your senses, but you want to avoid sight. So you don't want to do photographs because we tend to over rely on sight and sight also activates your critical mind. So you really want to get one of those things that kind of can almost ambush you. So like a song from your childhood or like a childhood candy or like the cologne that your grandfather wore or, um, you know, the texture of a hammock that you brought back from your year in the Peace Corps, something like that, that's um, activating the sense you don't normally use. And then just spend time with it. I mean, you're just actually commuting with it. So like, look at, you know, look at the Play-Doh, take it out, feel it in your hands, sniff it, and then just start to write any kind of, you know, stuff that comes to mind. So it could just be the details of how it smells, how it feels, but pretty soon a story will come and will be attached to it. And oftentimes, almost every time I do this, I'll, I'll, I'll bring my own. So it's things people haven't even chosen. I just like, you know, have a bag of stuff. I pile it onto the table. Everybody grabs something. And they always end up recovering a memory they hadn't really thought of before. And so it can bring stuff back to you. But it can also make your kind of writing more located and sensual and sensuous. Uh, if you do it with someone else, you can see that they have different experiences of the same object, which can be really, really revealing. But it's also just a way of kind of traveling back and like connecting with things that matter to you. And just like, oh, I had one of those little funny things and I was really into it at the time. Or I was listening to this song when you know, I first fell in love. Um, and so it's a, a kind of time travel. I love that idea. My, my kids just got Play-Doh. Um, and even before we opened it, I knew exactly what it was going to smell like and what it was going to feel like on my fingers. It had probably been 45 years since I had really touched Play-Doh in any meaningful capacity. But I also really like the fact that you're avoiding what is facile for you. So words can be facile. Images can be facile. For some people, music might be facile, right? You're, you're getting something that would not normally be your go-to thing and you're allowing it just to overtake you. All right. Well, Faith, so fun to catch up and also uh, be the uh, proving ground for your own podcast career, which will soon launch world. You'll hear about it here. Uh, we're going to go now. This has been Meanwhile, and we look forward to talking to the millions of you around the globe again soon. Are you sure? That's fun.